When I found out about your setup, I was so excited because though I don't have a Fitbit, my wife does. So I'm keenly aware of the fact that I can be accomplishing two things at the same time <laughs> as I'm walking around. Uh, I bring you greetings from Ebenezer Mennonite Church. That is the church that I, I'm currently serving at. I'm there to the end of the year. I work with the English-speaking part of the congregation, discipleship and outreach. That's kind of what I do. And uh, one of the general rules of preaching and teaching is, is that you should be able to summarize it. Like even if I take 20 minutes or 30 minutes or, or, or heaven forbid, four hours, and just so you guys know, I did some missionary work in Latin America, and four hours is not off the table. But, but, but Grant warned me about that, so I'll keep it under three, so for sure. But um, you should be able to summarize it, though, in less than a minute. You should be able to explain it to somebody else in less than a minute. And so I have an assignment for you. For those of you that are, are still in school, this won't phase you at all. For those of you that have been out of school for a while, this might be a bit stretching. But here's the assignment. Think to yourself, how would I explain this message to someone else in under a minute later? How, how is that conversation going to go? Um, how, how, if I encounter somebody who needs to hear this message, what words am I going to put to it so that it can flow for me naturally, my own words? Because you could keep saying, well, the pastor said, the pastor said, the pastor said. But ultimately, we want to introduce people to Jesus. And so we want to get as few stops in the way there as possible. We really want to remember what God has said. Sound good? Simon? Good. So that's the first part. The second part is, can we come to the basic agreement right now that if God's word makes something clear this morning, we will do it? We all on the same page? That if God's word makes something clear, we understand that we as the followers of Jesus, we're going to do it. It might be hard, might be difficult, seemingly impossible, but if God's word makes something clear, we should do it. Now, I'm asking you to think about this before you know what it is. Now, if I was a car salesman, you should be completely freaked out right now. But I am not. I am a preacher. We're going to get into God's word this morning. His word is sufficient. It is trustworthy. It is powerful. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, it is binding. This is what we should do. Okay, good. So now that we've got all of our intro stuff out of the way, and I'm at least three minutes into my three hours, uh, I want to hearken you guys back to a time a year ago when we could not leave our houses without masks. And just, uh, and just you know, how much we miss seeing each other's faces. The theme this morning is the face of God. And so I just want to kind of, you know, we, we kind of take for granted seeing each other's faces. But after the last uh, two years, I, don't, I have a, a great appreciation for seeing more of people than just this, you know, the eyes. Do you remember looking in somebody's face and you looked in their eyes and you were trying to figure out what was going on, right? Yeah, I, I remember going through um, the Tim Hortons drive-thru and this lady was serving me my, uh, my iced coffee, which it was very cold outside. So I think she was amused that I was ordering iced coffee. And so I ordered iced coffee, and, and I, I was looking in her eyes, and I was trying to like kind of connect. And then she, she noticed that I was looking at her eyes, and her eyes got kind of big. And she looked to one side, and then she looked at my eyes, and our eyes went back and forth. And if this had been a romantic comedy, this would have been hilarious, except I'm the 40-year-old guy, and she's the 18-year-old barista. But it was just this moment where, where there, was a, there was connection, and there was acknowledgement of one another. And I just kept thinking, I wish we could see each other's faces. I wish we could see each other's faces. I wish she could see, for example, my fatherly smile as opposed to the, hey, how you doing? Right? Completely different. And so seeing each other's faces, it's, it's wonderful. It's helpful in relationship. We can pick up on those little nuances, like the way that someone is smiling or if someone's amused, shared understanding. These things are really, really important in relationship. And we missed it. I know I missed it. Um, but we have to acknowledge something, because if we're going to talk about the face of God, we just can't say, and it's exactly the same way with God. 
You know, that we miss each other's faces, that seeing each other's faces is important to relationship. We can't say it's exactly the same way with God because it's not. We can't see him. We can't. Not in the same way. And when we talk about the face of God, and that is a phrase the Bible uses a lot with great impact, we need to recognize both the similarities and the differences between seeing the face of God and seeing the face of a friend or a brother or sister. Now, it's similar because in both situations, we're still talking about a relationship. At the end of the day, we're still talking about a connection with another person. It's about acknowledging one another and reading approval and affection or disapproval and disappointment in the face of the other. It's about having a registered impact on each other. And the Bible is clear that our faces, that our lives do prompt a response from God. There is back and forth. He did not make the world and then leave. Our faces are not far from him. He is logistically here and he is emotionally impacted by us, by what he sees in our faces, by what he sees in our lives. And for many of us, this is a struggle because he's so big. How could I have an impact on God? Why would God care? Or more importantly, he's so big, I shouldn't have an impact on him at all. And I want to suggest to you today that there's a little trick there that Satan's trying to do. He's trying to make God see distant because we're trying to say and think to ourselves, ah, oh, God experiences emotions and God interacts with us the way that we do. It's exactly the same way. So when I feel angry and I feel like losing control, I can't imagine God ever doing that. Therefore, God must not feel anger. Do you see the trick? When I feel anger, I, I'm going to lose control, but God surely is not like that. Therefore, God does not experience anger. It's a trap. It's a trap of our own thinking where we take our own human sinfulness and we apply it to God and we say, oh, God must not feel deep emotion because when I feel deep emotion, I almost lose control or I can't focus or I just don't like the way I feel. Or we have this idea that it makes God lesser somehow that he cares about us so that he feels things. And that's not true. We are made in his image. And as Jesus has made it abundantly clear, he feels everything and yet does not sin. Are we in agreement? Like, guys, we, we could do a whole sermon just on this. But I want to establish this point. We have a relationship with God. We really do. We see his face and we impact one another. Does that, does that make sense? He is not a distant God. He is not an uncaring God. He is not an unemotional God. He simply does not sin in his anger. What he does when he's angry is completely just every single time. What he does with his joy is completely just every single time. So we need to just remember that emotions are not wrong and having an impact on one another is not wrong. And that's a part of seeing each other's face. And in that way, we have a lot in common. We just need to remember that God, when he experiences emotions, does not sin. Hebrews 4.14, he experiences things, but does not sin. Feelings are like a check engine light on the dashboard of our lives. They do not control what the vehicle does, but they do clue us into what is happening in the vehicle and what is needed next. And in the same way, emotions are situational and self-awareness warnings. They remind us of the season that we are in. So we should pay attention to our emotions and not think that they automatically lead to sinful responses because that is not true. God does not lose control. He definitely interacts with us. He is affected by us and he is never the lesser for it. We have a true relationship with God. And I just want to hit the pause button for a second. If you do not have this kind of relationship with God, pray for it and want it because you are missing out. 
If you have some, some sense of deep reverence for a faraway supernatural being, let me assure you there is more, so much more. Do not settle. And do not let yourself think, well, for 40 or 50 or 60 years, this has been what my relationship with God is like. This is all there is. I want to assure you there is more because God really does love you. And he really wants to have a relationship with you. He doesn't just want you to bow. He wants you to know him as he knows you in the limited way that we can down here. Now in part, one day fully. So we just need to make sure that we never, never get confused about the idea of whether we can have a real relationship with God. So in that way, Seeing each other's faces, seeing the face of God is the same as another person. You can know one another, you can, you can read one another, you can see what each other is going through, and that is great. But of course, now we have a problem because the face of God is also rather obviously different. The presence of God is the supernatural affecting the natural. The observable, repeatable, scientifically categorical, encountering one who cannot be observed, replicated, or put in a box with a fancy Latin name. How could we possibly compare a face-to-face with another human being with a face-to-face with the God of the universe? And so we're going to go to Isaiah 6 and get a good picture of what it's like to come face-to-face with God. It'll be up on the screens. For those of you who are at home, you can follow it along there too as well. So Isaiah Isaiah chapter six, verse one, is Isaiah telling his story. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe me, I cried, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So yeah, this is not like meeting your friend at Tim Hortons. This is not like running into somebody. This is not even sitting down with someone you've known for a long time. This is the sheer terror of seeing the glory of God. And Isaiah saw it directly. And he saw not only God, he saw the effect that it had on the powerful supernatural angels around God. Signified by how they covered their faces and their feet. They, they showed respect and honor. They, they hid what in Middle Eastern culture was the dirtiest part of themselves, the feet from the presence of God. How holy he is. And he's stunned. Isaiah is stunned and overpowered and terrified because God is holy. Now you and I, we can sing that. We can sing it in songs. We can reference it. But to experience it directly, the way that Isaiah did, is a level 10 life-threatening danger. It is, it is more deadly than hiking in the Australian outback without a snake bite kit, than speeding with bald tires on black ice down the hills of Mission that any danger, anything you have ever experienced or will experience, because this is not holiness, the concept, or holiness, the flannel graph. This is holiness, the blazing white hot, white hot light that burns away all darkness instantly. This is light 
that instantly changes everything. It cannot be viewed casually. It cannot be viewed as a tourist. Where the face of God is, evil cannot be. And Isaiah saw and recognized the danger instantly. He knew he was a dead man. Just like John falls to the ground in the book of Revelation, Daniel falls to the ground in the book that bears his name. All of Israel hits their knees on Mount Carmel when God kicked Baal's butt. So Isaiah recognized with terror the holiness of the one he shared the room with. That is what is different about seeing God's face. The face of God is holy. The presence of God is impossibly holy. And when I say impossible, I mean impossible for you and I. Remember, the only human beings who have ever seen the face of God and lived without being instantly floored were Adam and Eve. And that is because they were at that time without sin. They were created and designed specifically to see and to speak with God, to enjoy the face of God. Genesis 2 and 3 record God speaking with Adam and I, like you spoke with your friends in the foyer before the service. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They literally hung out with God. They had a relationship with God. They did not fear him because those who are holy have nothing to fear in the presence of a holy God because God is holiness. His character defines holiness. His being is the very definition of holiness. To be holy is to be completely compatible with God. Now, Grant unpackaged this really well last week. God is good and he does not change. Isaiah knew, and if we're honest, we know that we are not good. And even if we could be good for a little while, we are changeable. You might have a perfect minute, a perfect hour, a perfect day. But tomorrow's a brand new day with brand new problems. We are changeable. God is not. And so we are, as Isaiah put it, ruined. For we are men and women of unclean lips, and we live among a people of unclean lips. And our eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, because he is holy and we are not, we are doomed. Exodus 33, 20 echoes this. When God says to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And that's not posturing. That's not bragging or bluffing. That's a warning from God to his friend. You want to see me? Well, you can't see me the way I actually am or you will die because I am holy and you are not. Remember, the face of God turned away even from his son, Jesus, when he took our sins upon himself on the cross. Matthew 27, 46. That's why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned away from me? The Bible repeatedly tells us that the face of God, that connection to God, that intimacy with God is not to be taken lightly. It is not some throwaway topic we casually bring up. It is death for the unholy and the unworthy. It is death for the entire human race because his perfect love and life-giving power is the polar opposite of the crippling hate and lethal darkness we have chosen. With every sinful decision, we choose death. Now, now, we, we don't choose darkness. None of us are idiots. We didn't choose darkness. We chose independence. Doesn't that sound better? We didn't choose evil. We chose doing our own thing. Doesn't that sound liberating? Guys, this is Satan 101. This is what he does. He makes a horrible decision seem like a pretty good idea. It's his wheelhouse. The first time we see him, that's what he's doing. Talking to Eve. And you know what he, does, what he, does, he doesn't do? He does not suggest to Eve that she drop her relationship with God. He doesn't say that. He simply suggests that maybe God's holding back a good thing from her. Maybe God's a little selfish. 
Maybe, maybe she deserved more to, to learn more than, uh, than God had already told her or to learn faster than the pace God had laid out for her, that she deserved already the full knowledge and creative power that he had as well. Just subtly, just a little bit. Maybe God's plan isn't the best plan for you. What a wonderful modifier. God's plans are great, but not, not for me necessarily. How many people has Satan taken out with that simple, simple equation? Right? God's plans are good. God is good, but he's not for me. So many people. And because Eve literally could not understand, because she could not comprehend the sweeping consequences of her actions, actions she did it. She disobeyed God. And then Adam copied her. And if anybody ever could claim ignorance, if anybody could ever use ignorance as an excuse, it was Adam and Eve. They had no way to know exactly what would happen when they disobeyed God. No one had ever done it before. And so you think they get a pass, right? They get a do-over. That God just bends his character for a bit and he's a little less holy for a moment just to smooth this whole thing over. Because if he was really loving, that's what he would do. And there is another satanic lie. The idea that if God was just a little bit more flexible, more people would be saved. Have you ever thought about that? Isn't it terribly unfair, God, that he's not more flexible? Wouldn't more people live if God was more flexible? But this is God's character. It's who he is. And again, it will never change. He is good. He is holy. If we choose to step away from him, if we make that choice logistically, in order for him to come and be close to us, he would have to follow us into sin. And it ain't ever going to happen. It cannot happen. We wanted independence. We got it. And all the death that comes with it even if we didn't understand. And, you know, we might be hard on Adam and Eve, but any of us, and all of us, could have and probably would have made the same choice in their way. They saw the face of God, and then they took the beautiful curiosity that God designed them with, and every human being with. And God gave us that curiosity so that we would spend an eternity exploring him without ever getting bored. You know, people talk about, well, won't heaven be boring? no. God designed us with a curiosity. We will never stop exploring and finding more and more and more of him. He is an eternal being. Thank goodness God made us curious. But again, we see that Satan takes that curiosity and he turns it. So the curiosity that God gave us for the purpose of endlessly exploring his creation and his own person without ever getting bored, it gets subverted into a curiosity. But what would happen if we did something a little bit different? If we didn't do things God's way, what would happen? That's all the serpent suggested, that God might be holding back something for himself, keeping something for himself, being a little selfish. So if God's way is plan A, then maybe, just maybe, plan B is better. And so we fell. The human race fell. And the face of God, which brought unspeakable joy and peace and purpose to the holy, became death to us, the sinful. And to be clear, again, this is not because God changed or his face changed, it is because and only because we changed. He stayed where he was and we stepped away. But we didn't stop needing him. We were designed to need him, designed to see his face, designed to find pur uh, purpose and, and, and motion and movement and life only in his presence. As the 17th century French mathematician Blaise Pascal, we got a great picture of this guy here. Man, I, I, we all need to get a nice black and white like that someday. 
You know what he said? He said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. That God-shaped vacuum or God-shaped hole means that we are destined to crave him. We need him. We are as naturally trapped in our need for the face of God as the earth is leashed by gravity to the sun. We, we don't have a choice. We are designed to need him. We will always be incomplete without him. And not just you and I sitting here, every human being on this planet. In fact, all of creation is designed to be connected to its creator. It is a ridiculous notion that the creator would make it and then leave uncaring. You know what? That's a fable we told ourselves so we wouldn't feel so bad about what we have done. Let's make it God's fault. He made the world and it's screwed up because he made it and left. No, this world is screwed up. We are screwed up because we are designed to be connected to him. And we said, no, maybe something out there is better than to see the face of God, experience the presence of God. And we see this in the scriptures. Look at David pouring out his heart here. Psalm 80, verse seven. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Those two connected thoughts. We cannot be saved unless your face shines upon us. And Psalm 51, nine to 12. Very, very famous. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. These two Psalms of David perfectly capture the terrible problem we face if we look on the face of God. We need him, but if we see him, we will die. This is the terrible riddle buried deep in the soul of every human being. We need God, but if we could see him, we would die. Or more, more, more clearly, if we could see him as we are right now, we would die. And that is right there where God did his best work. That little piece right there. We can't do it. We can't save ourselves. We're caught in the terrible riddle designed to be connected to him, but forever away from him on pain of death. And we're stuck. We can't do anything. Amen? We can't do anything. We can't solve the riddle. We can't fix the riddle. We can't power it through. We can't pick the lock. We can't work this. The entire human race coming together with the best machines and computer minds and whatever. It, we can't solve this problem. But there is a God who can remember, he hasn't changed. He was loving, is loving, always will be loving. Grant really hammered into the attributes of God last week, and we're going to come back to that in a second because it's important, because there's no way that God was just going to leave us to just die. Oh, well, I'll wait till they all die out, and then I'll start again. You or I might do that, but God won't because that's not his character. I want to skip ahead a little bit because of time. Just letting you guys know. I just want to jump ahead a little bit here. There was 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's sometimes called the, the 400 years of silence. The idea that, no, there's no new prophecies, no prophets coming. 
And it's misleading because remember, God is an eternal being. So when he speaks, what he says rings for an eternity. So in those 400 years, here's what they were doing. The people of Israel were studying the scriptures, what God had said so far, and trying to figure out what is God going to do next. There was no question that he was going to do something next. They could see the trajectory of what he was doing. And four groups developed, four ideas of thought. There was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. Four groups gathered together thinking, okay, we need God. We can't see God or we'll die. We can't fix this. It was a given. They all arrived at the same conclusion from the scriptures. It was very, very clear. And so they were all looking for a very, very particular savior. They were looking for a Messiah. All of them were looking for a Messiah. And, and they were looking for the right name, Messiah. And they were looking for the right idea that God would come and save. But here's where they encountered a problem. They started filling in the blanks themselves. What is the Messiah going to be like? So for the zealots, the Messiah is a military leader. He's going to come and he's going to physically rescue us from Rome by killing Caesar, by killing the Romans. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, they all had very different ideas of what the Messiah was going to be like. This 400 years of silence, and again, it's not actual silence, it's God's voice ringing what he's already said. And so as they were contemplating this, thinking about this, they came up with their own ideas. And that is why so many of them were practicing Advent. They were all practicing Advent waiting for the Messiah to come. And that is also why they missed him. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes, none of them showed up in mass at Bethlehem. They didn't. They had their own ideas of what it was going to look like. In particular, they were pretty sure that when the Messiah came, he was going to come from within their own order, and he was going to look like them. They kept thinking, and, and it's bizarre, but this is human nature. They kept thinking, when salvation comes, it's going to look a lot like me. It's going to look a lot like me. Another little trick of Satan there, right? Limits of our imagination. And so when the Messiah came, while there was many who was waiting for a Messiah, they missed it because they could not comprehend that the face of God would be the face of a baby. They could not comprehend that the voice of God would be the coo and the cry of an infant. That this was God's plan to bring people back into his presence without fear or trembling. Hebrews 10. So Jesus came to do, to bring us back into the presence of God without fear or trembling. Jesus is the way, the only way to know God without fear. See his face is to see the face of the Father. And because of Jesus, the face of God, the presence of God is not death for us anymore. Jesus is the answer to the terrible riddle. We need the face of God, but if we see the face of God, we will die. That is the change that a baby can bring. Just ask any first-time parents. I remember when we had our first child. At that time, I knew what a full night of sleep was like. I, I learned to remember it fondly. <laughs> parents who honestly thought, here's the, here's the big thing. Parents who honestly thought that they would be terrible parents because they looked in the mirror and they saw a selfish person when the baby came, suddenly they discovered this formerly dormant side of themselves, a hidden part of their design that is capable of total selfless love. From fighting for the biggest piece of cake to being a human shield for someone else, they would do it. That is the kind of shift that a baby can bring. And the Son of God? 
Well, all of that compassion, you remember the list from last week? Compassion, graciousness, slowness to anger, richness of love, abundance of love, that drive to forgive, and that absolute stubborn hold on justice and truth that God describes himself as being and having. It's there on Jesus' face, the face of God that we need. But there's one more thing that's there, and it's an invitation. Not to cower, only demons need to cower in the presence of Jesus. You and I and our neighbors, we get an invitation to step out of the darkness and into the light. Only the genius of God could take a face that brings instant death to the ungodly and find a way to send that face right into the middle of everybody walking in darkness. In, before, it would have been like a grenade, Right? If the face of God shows up in the presence of a bunch of sinful people walking in darkness, it's a grenade and they all fall and they drop and they die. But it's the genius of God that when Jesus comes, sorry, I just realized this thing is dangling off my ear, that when Jesus comes, somehow, instead of bringing death, it brings life. The genius of God. And to send the face of God right into the midst of people, to look them in the face and to speak just loud enough for each of them to hear, I love you. Come back, follow me home. It's right this way. Now you and I have said yes. And if you're here in this room, you have probably to varying degrees of understanding said yes to Jesus. And because of Jesus, you get to see the face of God and experience the face of God without fear. And you know what? If we just stopped there, we could walk out of here greatly encouraged. Amen? Can we not just walk out right now? Amen. I'm so glad for what I have been given. And that would so fit. That'd be so 2022. Would that not fit so well? I have gotten mine. Thank you, God. I have gotten mine. But it would be incomplete, wouldn't it? The challenge would be lost. See, when we look on the face of God, what do we see? We see compassion. So where is our compassion? Should we not be affected by him? If we are made holy by him, can we not be made compassionate by him? Seeing his face, should that not make us more compassionate? Every day we follow him? So let me just ask you the question. Where have your neighbors seen compassion in you this week? What about graciousness? We spend time with God. We see the face of God, the graciousness. If he can birth holiness in us, can he not birth graciousness in us? What about a quickness to forgive? An abundance of love? A stubbornness to hold on to justice and truth? Where are our neighbors seeing that in our lives? Do they see our face? First of all, do they see your faces enough? Do they see our faces enough to see anything? If they don't see our faces, they're not going to know, right? If we don't spend time, if we don't connect. And if they do spend time with us, what are they going to see? Compassion, graciousness, slowness to anger, abundance of love, a desire to forgive rather than a desire to be offended, which grants some sort of strange power currency in our time. No, 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 we're not quick to, not quick to be offended, quick to forgive. And of course, an absolute stubborn hold onto truth and justice. It can easily become a slogan, a throwaway line that people should see Jesus in us. We've said that before, right? People should see Jesus in us. Have you stopped to think about the, the incredible, terrible thing that you've just said? Because the face of God is death for some. 
But if they can just experience Jesus, if they can understand what Jesus did, it changes things. And I want to give this example. I want you to think about the example of Moses in Exodus 34, starting verse 29. We'll put it up on the screen. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. And afterward, all the Israelites came near to him. And he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Moses was changed by the face of God, by being in the presence of God. It was a change that initially shocked and scared people. They wanted at the deepest level to experience what Moses had experienced, but they were scared as they should be. The face of God is lethal, lethal to the sinful man and woman. But in Moses, in verse 31, he calls to them first to the leaders and after that, the entire community. And he drew them in and explained things to them. He did not keep what he had learned to himself. I mean, this passage could have said, when Moses realized his face was shining, he hid himself from them and stayed in the tent and did not tell them what God wanted. I guess this is just for me, said Moses. I guess I am the happy recipient of God's revelation and no one else is as special as me. No one else can handle it. But that's not what he does. And he's not alone. Remember we're talking about Isaiah? He sees God. Well, you know what happens after he sees God and this, this, this burning coal is touched to his lips to purify him, to symbolically purify him? Here's what happens. Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And I said, here I am, send me. Of course, to experience the face of God, to be transformed in the face of God, to line up with him. How could that, how could that possibly end with just, it all ends with me. Of course, it must flow through us to go and seek out the lost. Did that, did Jesus not seek out the lost? Yes or no? He did. Are we followers of Jesus? Guys, this is the simplest math that we can do. Does Jesus seek out the lost? Yes, he does. Are we followers of Jesus? Yes, we are. Therefore, ergo, we must now seek out the lost with our shining faces changed by the good news, changed by the presence of Jesus. We, we experience God and being with God changes us just like it changed Isaiah and Moses. And they learned from their time with God and they brought it to the people who needed it. And people who did not yet have direct access like they did, well, they got to get a little taste of it. And isn't that what Christmas is about? The being who is right with God because he is one with God and is God coming to those who cannot be with God because they are sinful. And he brings us back together. That is the genius of sending his son. He did it. He found a way. He did it. He solved the riddle. We were stuck. We were so stuck. And we were dying because we were stuck. We needed the presence of God, but we could not go there. It was lethal. And then Jesus came 
and he solved it. He made a way. Oh, how could we keep that to ourselves? How could we possibly keep that to ourselves? We know because spending time with God is so wonderful, the intimacy of it, that other people need it too. We know that other people need it. And uh, they will realize that they need it as they experience compassion and graciousness, slowness to anger, an abundance of love, a, a deep, deep desire to forgive, and an absolute hold on to truth. As we show those things, they will get to see the face of God in, in, a, in a slightly more accessible way, and they will take steps forward. And then it is my prayer, absolutely my prayer, and I hope it is your prayer as well, that you will be able to show someone who Jesus is and introduce him. And if that is not your ambition, what are you doing here? I don't, I don't want anybody here to feel guilty, but let us all feel convicted if we have let ourselves off with just receiving the richness of God that was given to us through Jesus Christ. And we feel no obligation to now help other people and to show them the way. I have a singular application point for you today, but you already know what it is. Spend time with God. And that's the only application point because if you spend time with God, I know you will see him as he is revealed to you through Jesus. And then I know that you will be transformed by it. And I know you will go out and share him with others. So spend time with God. Spend time with God. And then do what comes absolutely naturally through our new regenerated hearts. Share him with others. I want to end with this famous and sacred blessing from Numbers chapter 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Heavenly Father, please help us. Heavenly Father, thank you for answering our prayers. Amen.